At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hi everyone, it's Connor Boyle here. Before we get into this week's episode, there's something I'd love you to give a try. We've just launched a new online streaming platform, Intelligence Squared Plus. It's packed with over 20 years of our debates and whether you want to tune in live and watch along and ask your questions or watch back on demand, everything is totally ad-free and there's endless hours of discussion to dive into. The usual price is £14.99 a month, but we want to give you, our podcast listeners, a special offer to give it a try. For 10 days only, we're offering a subscription for only £10 a month, and the offer ends at midnight GMT on Tuesday 20th December. Get it while you can. So if you want to join the Intelligence Squared Plus community, visit intelligencesquaredplus.com or click the link in the episode description to subscribe and use the discount code MONTH10 or ANNUAL10 to start watching today. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Since Russia invaded Ukraine last February, the West has ramped up sanctions against Russia to an unprecedented level. But are the measures having the desired effect? On today's episode of the Sunday debate, the motion is sanctions against Russia won't work. Speaking for the motion, we have Richard Connolly, Associate Fellow at the Royal United Services Institute, and Simon Jenkins, journalist and author. Speaking against the motion, we were joined by Russia expert Owen Matthews and historian and journalist Anna Reid. The debate was recorded at a live event in central London, and our host was broadcaster and academic Philippa Thomas. And premium subscribers to Intelligence Squared, you can also get extended audience Q&A, as well as the final and deciding vote for the debate. But now it's time to get stuck in. Here's Philippa with more. Hello, welcome, good evening everyone. It is so lovely to be at an actual physical event and we will be bringing together you, the audience in the room and the audience online and um, it is lovely to be here. Our Intelligence Squared debate tonight is sanctions against Russia 
won't work. Uh, you'll be hearing some impassioned, intelligent uh, arguments on both sides, and you are going to be part of this event and this debate. So, we all know what we're thinking about. Nine months after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the enormity of the crime is still unfolding. The US State Department's special ambassador this week has called this a new Nuremberg moment. She's described systemic war crimes in every region where Russian forces have been deployed, deliberate, indiscriminate, disproportionate attacks against civilians. But as we consider the appropriate and effective response, do we think that sanctions should be key. Before we begin our debate, I'm going to get a sense from you, the audience, of where your opinions lie. So we're going to ask you for a pre-vote. And you have three options. You can vote for the motion, against the motion, or of course, you can be unsure, you can be undecided. And if you're watching on the live stream, you just find that voting link in our chat. And we'll keep you on tenterhooks for a little while. We'll announce the results of the pre-vote after our opening speeches. Then you know what there is to play for and where the audience sentiment is right now. We're going to start with our opening speeches. And I'm going to introduce our speakers one by one for you to hear uh, what they have to say. Our first speaker in favor of the motion that sanctions against Russia won't work is Simon Jenkins. Simon, I'm going to invite you to go up to the podium. Uh, you'll know Simon, journalist, author. He writes twice weekly for The Guardian. He's worked on The Economist and The Sunday Times. He has edited The Evening Standard and The Times. Simon's many books include works on London's architecture, the press, British politics. Uh, his bestsellers include England's Thousand Best Churches and Thousand Best Houses, a study of Thatcherism, short histories of London, England and Europe. And tonight, Simon, like the other speakers here, has 10 minutes to speak to the motion that sanctions against Russia won't work. Thank you very much indeed. Um, and, and I want to emphasize one thing from the very beginning of this debate. There have been many debates on Ukraine, and uh, we all, I think, know now what we think about it, uh, the war. We on this side of the, of the motion are not discussing whether Russia was right or wrong to invade Ukraine. The Russian invasion of Ukraine was an appalling aggression. Uh, I believe that it was wrong. I believe Ukraine was right in resisting it as it has done. Uh, I believe that NATO was right in coming to Ukraine's aid. Uh, it was right to give it military assistance. It was also right to be careful that that assistance only went to Ukraine and did not stray into Russia. Uh, everything about the uh, military side of this war uh, has, in my view, been acted correctly from the West's point of view. So we're not discussing the rights and wrongs of the war. We're discussing one uh, very specific thing, that is economic sanctions, a quite separate question from the war, in my view at least. Now, sanctions ever since uh, the, the Second World War have been, in many ways, the favorite weapon of more liberal Western regimes when they've been concerned to intervene in the uh, evils of the world, wherever they may be, uh, they have been, uh, on the whole, ineffective in that they haven't achieved their goal. And indeed, Nicholas Mulder, who's written one of the very few books on sanctions, it's an extraordinarily neglected subject. He um, studied about 35 sanctions, most of them still in place. And he pointed out that almost never did they achieve their goal. What they did was they were hurtful. So we're not arguing that sanctions don't hurt. 
you couldn't possibly argue that when you looked at the history of sanctions. Uh, places like um, Iraq, where the most vicious sanctions were imposed, thousands of people probably died uh, through being denied medicines uh, under sanctions. The UN has calculated that about a third of the poor in the world are operating or living under the cloud of economic sanctions imposed by the West. They uh, isolate regimes, they entrench regimes, they repress dissent, they bolster uh, autocratic regimes in their autocracy. Um, they are crippling of these regimes, but they don't seem to undermine them. And I think it's this inability to undermine power that lies at the heart of the ineffectiveness of sanctions, ineffective in not achieving their political goal because they are a political weapon. Never have sanctions directly undermined the victim power uh, that they were intended to do. It is quite extraordinary. I, Mulder, in his book, assesses uh, the effectiveness of sanctions, political effectiveness of sanctions, and reaches the conclusion that, on the whole, they may have 20% effectiveness in achieving any political goal at all. Uh, and his book actually describes the history of sanctions as the history of disappointments. Simple as that. And then when you look at the countries that were have been sanctioned against, uh, Cuba, North Korea, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Myanmar, Venezuela, all these countries have a curious solidity about them. Some of them were subsequently attacked militarily, but the sanctions never achieved their goal of toppling the, the regime. I think probably if I was running an autocracy, I'd plead with the Americans, sanction me, sanction me. I think probably that's the surest way of achieving um, both uh, internal stability for my regime and actually relative uh, security from being attacked outside. It's the most bizarre phenomenon that the most popular weapon deployed by the West aggressively against other countries should also be the most ineffective. It is a bizarre thesis, but it is the spaces on which we're um, proposing this motion. One of the reasons for this, I think, is that people misjudge the nature of economic power. Um, they think that, uh, and largely these are people in the West, in capitalist countries, they think that money is power. Curiously, um, autocratic regimes, but also all regimes, when they're in a state of bellicosity, when they're belligerent, discard considerations of cost. They don't worry about the money. Uh, it was very noticeable, even during the Falklands War, uh, the British government prevented Geoffrey Howe, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, from ever attending a war cabinet. They didn't want him to come up and say, we can't afford it. Money was not to be the issue when war is being fought. Uh, and this is so clearly the case, I think, in, 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 the, in, in the case of, of, of Putin at the moment. Most of the countries that have uh, sanctions attached to them are small, poor states. Doesn't mean the sanctions are effective, it just means they are happen to be poor, small states. Russia is probably the biggest and most powerful state to have concerted economic sanctions inflicted on it and they have had the most extraordinary and devastating sanctions inflicted on them. Their problems, one is that sanctions always leak. Uh, in the case of Russia, sanctions have leaked to Iran and China, helping it in, in, in the one or two respects in which they needed help, particularly with uh, small equipment for their weapons. But the real problem is that Russia also has power to hit back. Now, I'm told that nobody ever, in the course of the planning of British assistance to Ukraine, ever discussed what might be the consequence of sanctions against Russia for Britain. They just didn't think of it, because sanctions are so natural, the response to any conflict, that they simply don't worry about what might be the effect or the ineffectiveness of them. Russia does have the power uh, to hurt the West with gas and oil sanctions uh, and with other raw materials, and 
It did not propose to do that at the beginning of this war, but it did react to the declaration of economic sanctions against it. In other words, this separate war, the economic war with Russia, is quite separate from the war about Ukraine. It is actually a war declared by the West collectively against Russia, although it was not prepared to declare war against Russia militarily, as a result of which Russia could fight back more effectively, I think, than it's been able to fight back militarily in Ukraine. Indeed, uh, I think, and I'm pretty sure no one ever predicted the degree of instability that Russian reaction to sanctions has inflicted on the West. I'm almost tempted to say that if I was trying to propose a motion, the sanctions against the West might work because of the, of the effect that these sanctions have had on the West. Uh, I might be much more difficult, have much more difficulty uh, arguing the case. Sanctions on the West have been extraordinarily effective because Donald Trump's fallen, uh, Boris Johnson's fallen, Liz Truss has fallen, the German and French and Italian governments have been destabilized. Um, the effect of the sanctions on Russia in response to them has really been devastating. Probably the cost of the sanctions to the West has been much greater than the cost of supporting Ukraine militarily. So you do have a situation in which you have to say, what on earth uh, was the point of this exercise? The sanctions aren't effective. They aren't um, hurting Russia. They're hurting Russia, but they aren't affecting Russian uh, decisions over the war. Putin is peculiarly uh, resistant to anything the West does in the way in which he conducts this war. When in 2004 the sanctions were first imposed, the sanctions were described as deterring him from going any further in Ukraine. They were conspicuously unsuccessful in that respect. And I have to say that, that, um, that in the case of the sanctions which were uh, imposed on him, the only response that the West could do um, when criticized for those sanctions was to say, well, we couldn't think of anything else to do, and anyway, maybe we didn't impose them severely enough. Well, we've now imposed them even more severely, indeed the most severe sanctions ever in, in history. And they have still not worked in deterring Putin from the most horrific crimes in Ukraine. We have a problem now. How do we end the sanctions? It's a curious fact of sanctions so easily imposed that they are the most difficult to end. I think there's about a hundred sanctions regimes operating around the world now, mostly out of Washington. The answer to that is um, that they don't end easily. They end with great difficulty and often not at all. We're going to have a big problem in ending these sanctions. I want you to know they hurt, but they don't work. Thank you very much. Simon Jenkins, our first speaker, thank you very much. I'm now going to invite Anna Reid to speak. Anna is a historian and journalist. She was Kiev correspondent for The Economist and The Daily Telegraph in the early 90s and is the author of Borderland, A Journey Through the History of Ukraine, uh, the fourth edition of which has just been published. Anna's other books are The Shaman's Coat, A Colonial History of Siberia, and Leningrad, Tragedy of a City Under Siege, 1941-44, to which was shortlisted for the Duff Cooper Prize. It's been translated into 17 languages. Uh, from 2002 to 6, Anna directed the think tank policy exchanges foreign affairs program. She is a trustee of the Ukrainian Institute here in London. Anna, your 10 minutes. Thank you. So, are sanctions working or not? They are working. Right now, they're helping Ukraine to defend itself and hopefully to win the war. Longer term, they will restrict the growth of the Russian economy, which will in turn restrict Putin's ability to wage more wars, making us all safer. Whether we like it or not, while he remains in power, we are back at Cold War-style containment. The sanctions should stay in place. We need to make sure they're enforced, because as Simon says, historically they're evaded, and ideally we need to make them stronger. 
Richard's the economist here, so I won't go into detail on the sanctions themselves or their economic effects, but in brief, the West's response to the invasion in February was remarkably, unexpectedly strong and swift and unified. There was near universal condemnation in the UN, weapons started to be shipped immediately, and a first package of sanctions was agreed. And I think we're now on to our sixth, seventh package. I've lost count. They were on a completely different scale from the mere slap on the wrist in terms of sanctions that the West gave Russia in 2014 after it initially invaded the Donbass and Crimea. They cover hundreds of state-connected individuals and entities who've had their assets abroad frozen, doing business with them is banned, and they've been slapped with travel bans. That list is still expanding. On the financial side, all but essential financial transactions with a very small number of Russian banks are banned. Russian banks are out of the SWIFT international payment system. Credit cards issued by Russian banks don't work abroad. In addition, the portion of Russia's foreign exchange reserve held in central banks abroad has been frozen, and that makes up about half of the total Russian reserve. On trade, export to Russia of a wide range of goods, um, sensitive ones and high technology products in particular, is banned. It includes microchips, vitally. On the import side, Europe is dramatically cutting its purchases of gas and oil. On oil, the sanctions have not yet come into force. They'll do that next month. From December the 5th, imports of Russian, seaborne imports of Russian crude will come to an end, and that will be extended in February to all oil products. The G7 is putting together a price cap on Russian oil. The details of that have not yet been announced, but that will come into a force also next month. Last of all, over a thousand Western firms uh, under pressure from customers in part have voluntarily withdrawn from Russia, either closing or selling up completely. So how have all this, this massive package of sanctions have affected the Russian economy so far? When they were first announced, there was, when the war broke out, there was panic. Shelves emptied, ATMs more or less stopped working, the ruble crashed. Since then, things have stabilised, but only superficially. Shelves are full again, but with substitute more expensive goods. Inflation's running at nearly 13%. Rubles recovered, but thanks to exchange controls and the fact that imports have collapsed. On the all-important question of energy prices, they're coming down again. The gas price is coming down again after its spike in the summer, thanks to some rather nimble um, finding of alternative sources of supply by Europe. And oil is down to 87 a barrel, so below the magic $100 a barrel, which is in normal times the, the level at which Russia can balance its budget. The Russian economy as a whole is forecast to shrink by over 3% this year, over 2% next. Those are disappointingly small figures, but they mask much bigger drops in sectors dependent on imports. So high-tech manufacturing, telecoms, aviation, high-speed rail, and vitally defense. So how is all this helping Ukraine win the war? The extremely important, direct, and immediate way the sanctions are helping Ukraine is by preventing Russia from rearming. So in these first nine months of its suicidal, unprovoked war, it suffered enormous losses of military kit. Perhaps two to 3,000 tanks, five to 6,000 APCs, hundreds of artillery pieces and aircraft. It still has lots of dumb, unguided, Soviet-era shells left, but it's running out of smart 
modern missiles. Longer term, most economists agree that Russia is set for stagnation. You know, sort of skimming through various reports, you know, the words that crop up are sort of dismal, chronically sick, impoverishment. And that, that is set to continue irrespective of sanctions. If, even if we lifted sanctions tomorrow, the West would still be diversifying away from Russian commodities. You know, the permanent loss of gas sales to Europe will seriously hit government revenues. China will not make up the shortfall. Even if it were willing to, the infrastructure doesn't exist, the necessary pipelines don't exist. Russia's lost access to international capital markets. Foreign investors have been put off for perhaps a generation, and it's losing its own best and brightest minds as educated young people flee because they don't want to be part of Putin world and they don't want to be conscripted. Another point that The Economist Tim Ash, long, long time Russia and Ukraine watcher with Bear Stearns, puts is that while Putin stays in power, unless he moderates his militarism, which he shows no sign of doing, Russia is stuck in an arms race with the West. And as happened for the late period Soviet Union, that will bankrupt it. You know, something Western policymakers ought to say to themselves three times every morning in the mirror is Russia's economy is only slightly larger than Spain's. You know, for all its imposing vastness on the map and its ridiculously overblown sense of its own importance, Russia is not a great power. You know, US defense spending alone this year will be over $700 billion. That's nearly half of Russia's entire annual GDP. If all the NATO countries step up and fulfill their promise to up defense spending to 2% of their GDPs, Russia will be outgunned even further. You know, all this will not necessarily mean a moderation of Putin's aggression, nor will it necessarily mean he's shuffled aside by the elite or that there's any sort of popular mass movement against him. Owen's going to talk about the effect of the war on Russian society. But it contains Putin. It reduces his danger to us. It reduces his room for manoeuvre. That may be, for the foreseeable future, the best that we can hope for, but it's still certainly worth the price. To get back to our motion, are sanctions against Russia working? Yes, they're helping Ukraine to win by hampering Russian arms production. Yes, they're making Europe more secure by forcing us to end our dependency on Russian energy. Yes, they'll weaken Russia economically long-term which, while the current regime stays in place, makes us all safer. Let, let me pose a counterfactual to sum up. Simon's argument is that sanctions should be discontinued and military support for Ukraine continued. In other words, energy purchases should resume at the same time that we're sending arms to Ukraine. First of all, that would, that would embolden the Kremlin. That would send a signal to the Kremlin that we're losing interest, that we're going to give up on Ukraine. It plays also straight into their narrative that the West is hypocritical, decadent, weak. It would encourage the Kremlin to carry on with the war. Second, it's not tenable at home. It's simply too incoherent a policy to keep it up. It's unsustainable politically, domestically. Third, lifting sanctions would harm relations with Ukraine. It would completely undermine Ukrainian morale and it would undermine a country which is a vital buffer state for us. It isn't a repeat of Iraq or Afghanistan. We're not you know, we're not invading Ukraine. We're not setting off another civil war. We're, we're defending fellow Europeans, helping them defend themselves so that they can carry on with a way of life and rights that we take for granted. You know, they don't want to be part of Putin's crazy, Stalinist, fascist, sort of orthodox, mystical, mash-up dream world. You know, the big, the big picture is very simple, and so is the answer to this motion. Thank you. Thank you.
Anna Reid, thank you very much. Uh, Anna arguing against our motion, sanctions against Russia won't work. And our third speaker tonight will argue in favour of the motion that sanctions against Russia won't work. Richard Connolly is, as Anna was saying, a specialist on the Russian economy, an associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute, RUSI, here in London, and the Center for a New American Security in Washington, DC. Richard is director of the consultancy Eastern Advisory Group. And his most recent books are Russia's Response to Sanctions and The Very Short Introduction to the Russian Economy. So we're giving you a very short amount of time, 10 minutes here, uh, Richard, uh, to speak in favor of this motion. Did you know that wherever you are in the world, you can stream live Intelligence Squared debates and discussions? We've just launched a new online streaming service called Intelligence Squared Plus, where you can tune in to all our upcoming events, ask your questions, vote on motions, and also watch back all our previous events on demand wherever you want. The usual price is $14.99 a month, but for you, our podcast listeners, for just 10 days, we've got a special introductory offer of £10 per month. Visit intelligencesquaredplus.com or click the link in our description and use the code MONTH10 or ANNUAL10 to start watching. Offer ends at midnight GMT on Tuesday 20th of December, so subscribe today and don't miss out. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theater, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Thank you very much, Philippa. Um, I should say the book on Russia's response to sanctions was published in 2018. I'm not as quick as Owen here. I can't write a book in six months. Um, so uh, that was referring to the uh, sanctions imposed in 2014. Okay, so I'll start off by saying that I, uh, I think I also need to put my cards on the table, as Simon did earlier, and say that, because I think this is very important, that I think that a robust response to Russia's aggression in Ukraine is needed. And I think 
many components of that have been in place. But what I'm going to argue is that I'm skeptical as to whether sanctions are the way to do that most effectively. So I'm going to make three points. The first one is to do with impacts. There has been an impact um, on the Russian economy. The Russian economy is smaller today than it would have been had it not invaded Ukraine. On average, Russian, uh, the, the average Russian citizen is also poorer um, than they would have been had Russia not invaded Ukraine. And Russia's longer term prospects are bleak. They're bleaker than they were before the war, and they're already bleak, as Anna pointed out um, in her remarks. Uh, prior to the war, um, somebody spent his time looking at Russia's various different economic forecasts. Russia's economy has grown at an average rate over the last decade, less than 1% a year. This isn't an economy that was doing um, very well anyway, and there are reasons we could go into that as to why. Russia suffered from an overbearing state. I argue in my books that a lot of that was down to the 2014 sanctions, that the Russian government, in its response to Western sanctions, used that as a pretext to increase its control over the Russian economy and over, the Russian, uh, over Russian society more generally. So the state looms large in the Russian economy, and that breeds all sorts of negative things uh, for economic performance, including low private investment. Uh, entrepreneurs in Russia are scared to invest because if they come, become successful, uh, inevitably they have their assets stolen from them in a process known as register or raiding. And there's low levels of competition in the Russian economy because the Russian state looms large and because private entrepreneurs have their assets gobbled up. And Russia's working age population has been shrinking since 2010. That's its labor force, the number of people available to work. So as an economist, I look at those factors and you say things, weren't, um, <laughs> things really weren't looking very good uh, prior to February. And all of these things contributed to what was an extremely sclerotic race of pre-war growth. And things have got worse. Imports, as Anna pointed out, um, are down sharply, especially from the West, although they have actually risen from some other places. Um, inflation rose early on, peaked at around about 17% early in the spring. Um, and some of uh, around half of Russia's state uh, foreign exchange reserves were frozen, uh, those held in Western um, central banks. But this is my main point here, the first one. We should be wary of exaggerating the impact of sanctions. And remember, impact isn't effectiveness. Impact's just um, what the observable impact is on uh, economic indicators. Effectiveness is about do sanctions change the foreign policy of the target country, in this case, Russia. Because Russia's exports of natural resources have largely continued uninterrupted, and because what measures have put in been put in place to, uh, to restrict those exports have actually ended up serving to push prices up, the Russian states ended up having more, more than enough money to pay for the war and to ensure, this is key, that its supporters are allocated funds, the people who support the regime. Moreover, Russia is, and the Russian state and society, is adapting. That's what countries do when they're placed under sanctions. Simon listed all of those different countries that have experienced sanctions in the last uh, few, uh, few decades. All countries adapt. They don't sit there and wait for sanctions to weaken their societies and their regimes. Instead, they adjust. They're a moving target. And in many ways, this process of adaptation is easier in authoritarian societies. Faced with a choice between looking after everybody, the wider citizenry, as might be demanded in a democracy, or simply looking after those that matter to a regime's ability to survive, an authoritarian system inevitably opts for the latter. And that's what's happening in Russia today. It's what happened in Russia after 2014. The well-meaning and very often well-heeled Muscovites and other city dwellers in Russia who never supported Putin anyway are simply ignored by the regime. 
even though the economy is getting smaller, the pie is getting smaller, the funds that are available are given to those that support the regime, people in the elites, but also other people elsewhere across the country. So the scarce resources, which become increasingly scarce as the economy gets smaller, are channeled to those who are vital to regime survival. The military, the security services, workers in state-owned enterprises, Monograd, the, the one-city towns, the backbone of the Putinist system. So let's look at some of the effects, the impacts since February. Inflation rose, as Anna pointed out, but has been in decline since the summer compared to Western economies where it's on its way up. Half of the foreign exchange reserves were frozen, but they have since uh, been at least partially replenished. More than half of the value of those frozen have been added by the uh, Russian central bank since February. Sanctions were imposed on Russia's oil industry. Prices rose. All sorts of restrictions on the purchase and, uh, and transport and dealing in Russian, uh, in Russian oil were imposed, and this pushed prices up. As the ruble weakened sharply in the first months of the war, this had the counterintuitive effect of actually meaning that Russia's ruble income rose, at least until the summer. This meant that there were more rubles for the Russian state to spend on the war and, supporting, uh, and, and allocating uh, funds to its supporters. And that's important because the Kremlin pays its bills in rubles, not in dollars. Whilst the ruble has appreciated since the summer, the dollar value of Russia's hydrocarbon exports remains well above average levels. And I'm skeptical as to whether any price cap will work. The Russians have said, then we just won't sell you the oil if it's not at a price that is set by the uh, world market. If that happens, prices will go up even further. Unemployment's barely gone up, even if the official figures are likely to overstate the number of people in work. And parallel imports, that's the unlicensed imports of goods from third countries, have filled the stores of many shops. Albeit prices are higher, but nevertheless, a lot of Russians are still getting the things that they used to get in. Trade with the West has plummeted. Trade with China and the likes of Turkey has boomed. Which brings me to my second point. Countries adapt, and in doing so, they change the fabric of the society that existed before the sanctions. The very process of adaptation in an authoritarian society involves centralization and the strengthening of pillars of regime support. This happened after 2014. It's happening now. It means the increasing censorship and use of official media to shift the blame for hardship onto the regime's external opponents. It means greater state control over the economy. Cronies and managers of state-owned enterprises are strengthened as they're given responsibility for supplying goods that can no longer be imported from traditional sources. These goods, because they're in short supply, rise in price. Cronies take uh, charge of supplying them. They all line their pockets. All of which adds up to a system that closes ranks, becomes richer and more unified, even if this comes at the expense of the welfare of wider society. But in an authoritarian society, the welfare of society isn't as important as it is in a democracy. Of course, it's desirable if the cost isn't too high uh, for the ordinary citizen to be well off. But if push comes to shove, as it is now in Russia, then the Kremlin will opt to provide simply for those that support it. Now, what I'm saying now isn't just a hypothesis of how I think things will develop in Russia in the near future. It is that. But it's also precisely what happened after 2014 and the imposition of sanctions then. This is what I argued in my book. The, the economy and politics became more centralized. The regime became even more repressive. And the prospects for social change were much reduced. Sanctions gave the regime a pretext to do all of that. This moves me to my final point. By imposing sanctions that seem to be based on the principle that the more we impose, the better, we risk eroding the political will of our own societies to continue supporting Ukraine, providing it with military support, etc., and resisting Russian expansionism. Some of the sanctions, especially those that are designed to reduce Russian export revenues, such as the price cap, have the added effect of raising prices in our own countries. Now, in some ways, this is admirable. 
Only by showing that we're prepared to pay a heavy price can we hope to ensure that the Russians also pay a correspondingly high cost. But to date, we've paid an extremely heavy price. We see that in the form of rising inflation um, and all sorts of other forms of economic hardship that we're seeing across Europe now. All the while, the Russians, and in particular the Russian state, continue to make money. And the more we distort the global energy and regional energy markets, the more prices will rise. And that's bad for us, good for Moscow. The real problem we have is that the longer the war carries on and the more the energy markets are distorted by sanctions, the greater the risk that support for Ukraine in Western societies and elsewhere will waver. This to me seems counterproductive. So to sum up, although I'm in favor of sanctions that hamper Russia's ability to produce weaponry and to tap international capital markets, we really need to be more realistic about the effectiveness of sanctions and their unintended consequences. Sanctions make target societies poorer, but that isn't enough. If the target regime adapts, as the Kremlin did in 2014 and continues to do today, the impact of sanctions is diluted. And the process of adaptation only strengthens rather than weakens the target regime. All of which takes place while Western societies pay a growing price for sanctions that could be the very thing that causes its collective will to support Ukraine to waver. Under that scenario, there would only be one winner, and that, I argue, would be Russia. Thank you. Richard, thank you very much. And our final speaker, I can see questions coming in already, but, but hold those thoughts that you have. We want to hear from our final speaker making the case against the motion that sanctions against Russia won't work. Owen Matthews, Russian expert, author of five books. As a war correspondent, Owen covered conflicts in Bosnia, Lebanon, Afghanistan, Chechnya, Iraq, Ukraine. For 10 years, he was Moscow bureau chief for Newsweek. Uh, Owen's new book is Overreach, the inside story of Putin and Russia's war against Ukraine. It's been described by the Daily Mail as Robert Harris storytelling territory and by The Telegraph as a remarkable achievement with Matthew's expert eye like an all-seeing drone buzzing from one side of the conflict to the other. I don't know what you think of that, but Owen, you now have 10 minutes to make Thank your you. case. Thank you very much. Let's start by interrogating the motion. What gives us the right to ask that question? Will sanctions work? Will they not work? The fact that underlies that question is the premise is that we have a choice. I would argue that we don't have a choice that frankly, we have to impose sanctions because that is right and proper, and we cannot look the East End of Europe in the eye if we were not to do that. It is a moral issue as well as a practical issue, or I would say a moral issue first and foremost beyond a practical issue. However, tonight we're discussing the practicalities of it. And I would start to explore that by posing counterfactual by turning the whole reality of the last nine months on their head. And imagine a world where we were still doing business with Russia. That world would be a world which would confirm all of Vladimir Putin's worst assumptions about the way the West works. Back in 2014, in February, Angela Merkel and all the leaders of Europe and the world lined up to express their outrage about the annexation of Crimea. This will not stand, said Angela Merkel. This aggression on the European continent cannot be allowed. Everyone lined up to express their extreme condemnation. Packages of sanctions were put together. They were sanctions primarily, first of all, actually targeted personally at various Kremlin-connected individuals, uh, not really at the root of the Russian economy. But the sanctions were imposed 
as the West's statement. What happens 14 months after the annexation of Crimea? Angela Merkel signs a deal with Gazprom for a $10 billion Nord Stream 2 pipeline, against, by the way, the strong objections of the Americans. That shows the Russians that the, West, the West's words are written in water. Angela Merkel, whatever she says, whatever principle she may claim to adhere to, will be always secondary in the minds of the Kremlin back then to the West's addiction to cheap gas. And as we know from reporting from political reporters far better connected than myself, uh, Alexey Vinyadikta, for instance, the uh, editor-in-chief of, of Echo Moskvi radio station. The one thing that surprised the Kremlin most of all at the beginning of the outbreak of this war, 2022 invasion, was their shock at how not only the West responded, but also how private companies responded. They were horrified and mystified. Why? Because they, not unreasonably, because like all human beings, the Kremlin believed Putin believed, he was deeply deluded about many things and deeply misinformed about many things, but one thing where he was actually quite reasonable in his assumptions was he believed, like all human beings, that the future would be like the past. What had Russia's experience been in the past? It had been of an absolutely cynical West whose sanctions were ultimately toothless because they did not include oil and gas. By the way, the latest sanctions of, uh, package of sanctions also do not include gas because the Russians actually effectively sanctioned themselves on that by blowing up their own pipeline, Nord Stream 2. But the point is, the, 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 the takeaway was, I would say, in this imaginary world where we were still doing business with Russia, they would, all their assumptions about the West cynicism would be justified. And furthermore, the war, I think, was actually predicated on that lack of action. So one could actually argue, I think, much more effectively that the problem, one of the reasons or, and one of the ways in which the West, I think, could have acted to prevent this war, to contain Russia, to send a much stronger message, would actually, was actually to have imposed far harsher sanctions in 2014. And actually, that's, the problem is not that sanctions will not work, is that the weak sanctions of 2014 did not work. True. Richard's completely right about that, and Simon as well. They did not work. They encouraged the Kremlin to believe that they could push further and get away with it again. Except, to the Kremlin's surprise, as we know, this time it's different. Just a few words about the actual effectiveness about, of sanctions. Is that actually, Richard is obviously far better informed and, uh, in detail about than I am, but the point is they work in poisoning the Russian economy in the root. Specifically, for instance, for the first time in decades, the benchmark Brent crude and Urals crude, which is always traded at the same levels, have, over the course of the summer since the beginning of the war, been trading at about a $30 per barrel discount. In other words, Russia, in other words uh, uh, Russia's big mates, China and India, are buying Russia's oil at a massive discount. And Russian oil to produce, according to a... Saudi Aramco study a few years ago, is around between 42 
and $45 a barrel. That discount is a sanctions discount. By the way, China did exactly the same to, to Iran. They also buy Iranian oil at a massive discount. So the money that actually goes from that $85 a barrel, when you take into account extraction costs and the discount at which going, the, the Russians are forced to sell it, means that they actually only keep $10 to $15 per barrel. And that is a very serious problem. China, China is supposedly, we all think, Russia's big diplomatic ally in the world, and that they are, at the beginning of the war, they actually came out and basically blamed NATO and, 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 and the, the, the United States for pushing Russia into this war. But the reality is that major Chinese corporations are pulling out of Russia, and they have. Chinese companies are effectively observing American sanctions. Why are they doing that? Because Russia does $70 billion, now rising to about 100, thanks to extra imports of crude oil. But now, let's say $100 billion of business with Russia. But China does $2.5 trillion worth of business with the US and the EU. They know very clearly which side their bread is buttered. Russia is China's 11th largest trading partner. They don't care, really, about, their, uh, about losing that business for political rents, they actually, uh, the sanctions have actually prevented and very strongly uh, damaged the Russian economy by removing that economic, that source of uh, finance, of capital, and also the technological exchange, because the major Chinese technology companies that could have stepped in and provided the microchips which they're pulling out of washing machines to uh, power their cruise missiles and their tanks. That could, that could all have come from China. But the Chinese technology companies are wary of U.S. sanctions. So actually, even countries which do not officially subscribe to U.S. sanctions have de facto actually been brought under that gravitational field and have damaged Russia's capabilities, not just of economic development, but also for, of, uh, of, of, of waging war. Now, finally, I would, going back to the forensics of who is not affected within Russia by sanctions. Now, Simon is, in, is absolutely right, and he has a long and very enviable and admirable track record of speaking out against foolish, badly thought out Western interventions, particularly over the Iraq war. And he is furthermore right that, in fact, the upper echelons of the Kremlin are personally unaffected. They don't care about the fortunes of the oligarchs. They don't really care about the future of Russia's engagement with the West. They have subscribed to what one might describe as sort of ultra-nationalist fantasy, back-to-the-future world. That is the world of the people who are in charge. There are rather few of those people. They are specifically the old KGB men who surround Putin. Those are the men who run Russia. And they are the men, by the way, who have achieved what many old men may fantasize about, but very few achieve, and that is actually creating a future that resembles their own past. But there's actually a much larger silent majority in Russia for whom Putin is demonstrably, clearly, very bad for business. And that silent majority may not be in charge. They're Pain threshold is enormously high. We must not confuse Russian voters with Western voters. It's not about the economy, stupid. They'll put up with an enormous amount before they come out on the streets. But nonetheless, you actually have created, thanks to sanctions, a gigantic silent majority within Russia 
which actually has a strong vested interest in seeing some kind of regime change, some kind of reform, some kind of movement onwards from the current sort of death cult which currently rules them. So my final conclusion, concluding point is the sanctions work in ways that we don't necessarily understand, um, but the point is that they are, are also inevitable and a, and a profound moral obligation that we cannot ignore. Owen, thank you very much. You've heard four compelling cases. In fact, I'd like to ask for another round of applause for uh, the collective effort. Thank you. And we are about to start uh, Q&A, the questions. Uh, we're going to invite you to take part in this. Uh, but at first, I'm going to let you know the result of the pre-vote taken before this debate. Remember, the debate is sanctions against Russia won't work. Agreeing with that, we had 34%. Disagreeing, 27%. But undecided, 39%. A lot of people who are open-minded, to be persuaded, listening closely to what you all have to say. And that's people here in the hall uh, and those who are joining us online. Uh, so I find that particularly interesting that we you know so much thinking, so much debate, so much passion, so much at stake over Ukraine, and yet 39% of our audience undecided on uh, this question. Now, what I'm going to do is uh, remind you that if you're watching online, you can put questions uh, into the Q&A tab on the right-hand side of your screen. And if you'd like to ask a question here at Conway Hall, please queue up at the microphone stands, uh, which will be at either side of the hall. The lights are really strong, so I may end up asking you to wave at me. Uh, it's, not, it's not deliberate if I seem to overlook you, but I'll be looking out for, there we go, um, for the uh, microphone stands. Uh, a reminder to try to keep your questions brief and to the point so we can get as much response as possible. Thank you. I can see you now. Um, and we invite you to tell us if you are Russian or Ukrainian so the, the audience uh, knows. I want to start actually with a, a question that popped up very quickly uh, online uh, when we're looking at a particular sanction, a particular uh, pushback which is affecting Russian citizens. And the question has said, I believe that blocks on the emigration of Russian citizens now are counterproductive and that the loss of the young, trained metropolitan elite will weaken the Putin regime. Uh, do the panel agree? And Anna, actually, I'd like to come to you first on your thinking on that the blocks on the emigration of the young Russians who have wanted to leave in their thousands. Yes, well, Owen's the person who has lots of very first-hand knowledge of this, but I, I think the latest estimate I heard came across was half a million people and rising. I'm, I'm very, very, very torn myself on whether we ought to, you know, still be giving Russians visas. There's a, there's a big... Um, amongst Ukrainians, of course, there's a big move to just refuse all visas, all tourist visas to Russians because they find the sight of um, Russians happily having fun, you know, in London and Rome and Paris and everything while their homes have sort of burned out top to bottom and their children have lost limbs or been killed and their, so their refugees for the foreseeable future. They find that truly disgusting. On the other hand, of course, there's the argument 
that by welcoming them, um, A, you're showing them that the West isn't a, a great, you know, this paranoid place that Russia paints it as, and B, that you're depriving the Russia of, you know, brains it needs. Other thoughts on the those who are keen to get out and what difference that could make in terms of pressure? Yes, I mean, I, I've, I've actually written quite a lot, actually, um, calling on, calling out, let's say, uh, the bolts and the poles on their attitude, because I think there is actually a very nasty um, streak of Russophobia, frankly, of like just anti-Russian racism, because they hate Russians because they are Russians. And the initiative that was sponsored by, uh, and in fact, ultimately pursued by unilaterally by the three Baltic countries, Finland and Poland, to actually exclude people with Russians with visitor visas, was actually, I think, motivated by you know post-colonial trauma and deep hatred and whatever. But it was not aimed against the Putin regime. It was against aimed against Russians. And I think that's actually something that, strange enough, Boris Johnson, dare I say it, in this, uh, in this company actually got entirely right. Right at the beginning of the war, his first statement, by the way, in actually not terrible Russian, Boris Johnson said, like, you know, we are supporting, the, you know, we're with the Russian people, we're not, we're not against the Russian people, we're against the Kremlin. So the point is that, yes, absolutely, like the... Putin regime would be absolutely crippled if you suddenly offered every single professional uh, visa. They would, you know, it, it, as, as they would say, uh, as the, the old solidarity joke in Poland, you know, if they ever opened the borders of Poland, would the last person to leave switch off the lights? That's massively damaging. But actually, unfortunately, the metrics of how to do that, how do you make sure that you don't get any bad Russians out? Well, I mean, there's actually, strangely enough, a, uh, a, a quick fix of this, and that is that you force everybody to make a donation to the Ukrainian Red Cross or military, which is in fact illegal for any government, Russian government employees. They, you have to make a direct donation. I mean, there's been a lot of debate about this. Michael McFall, who is an advisor to Obama, first backed all the backed a visa ban, then said, well, let's make them donate. But anyway, I mean, that, that is just one thing that you can actually make people do as a condition of getting a Western visa is, you know, you have made a contribution of, you know, 150 euros to the Ukrainian armed forces if you are actually yourself a Russian. I kind of stand up and be counted as, which Russian. is where you and Anna have both, have both come to. <laughs> to yourself um, with can the I, Simon, I, I see you leave. Into this. I found, I have to say, the whole Russophobia that's still state-sponsored, very unattractive. I mean, not playing Tchaikovsky in Cardiff. It's obsessive. Uh, and it, it's, it's a sort of, it's a sort of, um, it's a cheap way of trying to say, we hate you. And doesn't that make you feel awful? Uh, and I, it's, it's like going back to school. So I feel, I feel very worried mm -hmm. about that. Uh, absolutely right. Um, you cream off um, the, 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 sort of the middle-class, smarter set uh, from these places and bring them into your country, it does them immense damage. Um, I know Iranians love the fact that all the smart Iranians get out of Iran, leaving the regime more or less damaged by domestic dissent. But dissent. they're losing resources, no? But you know, look, look no, nothing said on this platform who I disagreed with. It hurts. War hurts. Uh, sanctions hurt. It's hurting Russia. We know that. The question is, and no one's answered the question, could you demonstrate to me a single decision taken by Putin which reflects the fact that he's suffering from economic sanctions? No. No one can come up with a single remark. I mean, honestly, in your book, you're very clear on this. Putin is not damaged by these sanctions. He's not undermined by them. Indeed, the fact that we've declared economic war on Russia, he's not declared any war on us. We've declared war on him in the economy. He uses that to bolster his own position by saying, it's the West that's attacking me. I'm not attacking the West. 
and premium subscribers to Intelligence Squared, you can also get extended audience Q&A, as well as the final and deciding vote for the debate. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.